0: Alright, it's the Oregon Poison Center monthly journal club for March twenty-eighth, twenty nineteen. And today looking at a topic we haven't actually covered before, and that was kind of hard to come up with because we've covered a lot, a lot of things in toxicology, but I realized we never ever ever really talked about antibiotics. And so uh the you know subtitle for today's journal club is Antibiotics, New Side Effects, New Regimens and New Drugs. And what prompted this is there was a couple of articles that were recent that we'll talk about um, about some side effects of fluoroquinolones, and then we'll talk about some new regimens that have come out and any new antibiotic that's out there. Many of these are also very germane to those who, who listen who also do emergency medicine, but I think there's a couple of points to be made for toxicology as well. Um, to kind of start off with the kind of rip from the headlines article, we'll have Adam talk about this article that got a lot of uh, uh, notation both in the medical press and a little bit in the lay press as well, we've all known that fluoroquinolones have a few side effects, but this is the one I think that got some people a little bit anxious and nervous. So tell us about that,
1: Al. Of course, yeah. Uh, So this is a paper, it's entitled, Fluoroquinolone Use and Risk of Aortic Aneurysm and Dissection Nationwide Cohort Study. And this is by Pasternak and others uh, from January 2018 in the British Medical Journal. And so this is a study looking at this question of uh, to what extent Uh, Do fluoroquinolins cause um, aortic uh, dissection and aneurysm, which is uh, obviously catastrophic um, and potentially fatal uh, side effect, which no one wants to cause. Uh, So this study was um, uh, designed quite interestingly. It's uh, looking at a population of uh, Swedish individuals um, from July 2006 to December 2013. And the Swedish uh, medical system is integrated in a much fuller way than in the United States. So they have access to medical records across multiple different hospitals. They also have medical records because the the pharmacy dispensing system is also nationalized. So they can extract data not only from hospitals, from primary care settings, but also from um, outpatient pharmacies. Um, So what they essentially did was they looked at um, all patients who were prescribed fluoroquinolones during this time period. As well as uh, amoxicillin. And amoxicillin was used as a comparator uh, because we don't want to compare sick patients' fluoroquinolone use to placebo or to nothing to patients who are healthy. That that wouldn't really make a lot of sense. Um, So they. They compared uh, these two groups, the ciprofloxacin and other fluoroquinolins versus amoxicillin. And then on top of that, they did uh, propensity matching, which is uh, really the best way, if you can do it, to do a retrospective study. Uh, And so they attempted to correct for other factors like medical history, disease states, age, sex, Uh, even uh, regions of Sweden were attempted to be corrected for, uh, which was really uh, rigorous and the right thing to do. So at this point, they um, compared these two groups, uh, with the uh, outcome of interest being uh, the diagnosis of aortic dissection or aortic aneurysm, and uh, essentially com- compared how how often these two things happen. And what they found was that there was a there was an increased uh, chance of uh, aortic dissection and aneurysm in the fluoroquinolone group, uh, with a hazard ratio of about 1.66. So Not not nothing, not huge, um, but was there and it was quite detectable and they had literally hundreds of thousands of patients in both of these arms. So let's go through the uh, study a little bit more and then uh, can talk a little bit about it. So they pulled data from, um, again, from multiple sites, uh, outpatient pharmacies, uh, things like that. Um, they had certain exclusion criteria which were all very reasonable. Uh, so, for example, they tried to uh, exclude anyone who was on any other antibiotics during the previous uh, four months, uh, 120 days. Um, patients who uh, were not admitted to, um, to the hospital uh, during this time, um, essentially just trying to eliminate any other confounders as much as possible. Okay. So, what they um, finally found was that um, out of about a million patients who would be given a prescription for an antibiotic there would be an excess of eighty two uh, cases of aortic dissection or rupture and this was a kind of a real number um, now just to put that into context you know eighty two out of a million is eighty two more than there need to be mm-hmm. however if you turn that into just a a number that's a little easier to process. I think everyone has different ways of processing information. I like the number needed to treat and number needed to harm. That just kind of makes sense in my head. Um, If you calculate a number needed to harm, uh, you need to prescribe 12,195 fluoroquinolones to cause one aortic dissection or aortic aneurysm. So not, you really need to see um, several years worth of patients to cause one bad outcome in this one region of potential bad outcomes. When we're also thinking about what are we treating infections, which are a much more common killer of human beings, you need to kind of weigh the, you know, the, the con of this very rare outcome versus the very real benefit of a potential life save. That said, if there's another drug that has the same benefit and less risk, that is the, that is the right choice. So there's, um, Another uh, paper that looks at, it's an, actually an editorial. This is um, a uh, editorial also in the uh, British Medical Journal. This is uh, from a couple of months later in March 2018, and this is by uh, Professor Drew Link, uh, entitled Fluoroquinolones and the Aorta. Possible link with aortic pathology, but the absolute risk appears very low. And what they essentially did was talk about this and discussed the link uh, using the Hill criteria, which were we've discussed before is how do you actually uh, assess whether something causes something else. And this is very difficult to do in retrospective studies, but the Hill criteria can help uh, prove a causal link. Um, And so this is from 1965 when the Hill criteria were first kind of written out, and that's uh, the biological plausibility, consistency, coherence, specificity, strength of association, gradient, experiment, analogy and temporality, and kind of goes through each one of these as it pertains to fluoroquinolones and um, these aortic diseases. So biologic plausibility is quite possible. We already know that um, uh, the aorta is made of collagen and that fluoroquinolones do, can damage uh, collagen uh, containing structures, most notably the Achilles tendon. This is uh, thought to be because it enhances metalloprotein uh, protease activity and cause breakdown. Um, The uh, idea of coherence, um, this doesn't contradict anything else we know about biomedical science. It's kind of consistent with what we know about how the body works. Um, uh, The idea of uh, specificity, which is a little bit lost here. It seems to um, uh, cause uh, these types of issues, but uh, it's possible it causes others as well. And then temporality is another uh, important one. And the previous study uh, essentially found that the rate of these aortic diseases kind of peaked in the two to four weeks following exposure. Um, And that's a very similar time course to the uh, rate of Achilles tendon rupture with fluoroquinolone use as well. So all of these things are completely consistent uh, that fluoroquinolones very well might cause these aortic diseases.
0: Yeah. No, I thought um, both these articles were, were interesting and um, well done. Certainly, we've reviewed other articles from the different Scandinavian countries where they have this comprehensive database where they can look at literally every prescription written in the country and every medical outcome that occurs with those folks. And we've addressed several other questions before, like the calcium channel blockers, of course, cancer, which was a fear a few years ago, and they proved negative by looking at the databases. I think what surprised me the most, you know, I always thought that, yeah, maybe people would take fluoroquinolones, maybe they're a bit older, they got COPD, mm-hmm. and yeah, someone down the line finds out they had an aortic rupture, but the thing that I think it was just uh, the most telling was most of these occurred, well, the study was designed to pick those diseases within 60 days, mm-hmm. but the vast majority of them occurred within 10 days, so during the course of fluoroquinolone therapy, um, they... Um, basically had their aortic dissection, and they were able to follow all the uh, uh, cases to conclusion. Um, you're right, we need to treat a lot of people to get this, but maybe we should be a little bit selective and ask the right questions about mm-hmm. people and their risk factors for aortic dissection, which none of the article delves into, uh, before we put older people with COPD or pneumonia. Mm-hmm. We'll talk a little bit about, more about pneumonia in a second um, on these medications. The second article I thought was just a great review of the Bradford Hill criteria and how it applies in the real world to this is written by a Canadian toxicologist, which we see at many of our national meetings, David Derlink. And basically he says, yeah, this fulfills a lot of these criteria that we use to say, do I believe this is true? Uh, There's been prior studies, there's at least a physiologic link with why this would happen with collagen vascular degradation. Um, and all the other criteria that exist with the Bradford criteria. So I think certainly gives me pause if I was to write for quinolones for many people. And there are also a lot of people we write for quinolones for longer term problems. We'll talk about bone infections, but certainly when all those people were exposed to anthrax, they all got put on cipro for sixty days, which mm-hmm. I think probably in the light of this is probably not the best idea in the world if there's another option out there. So a new precaution Mm -hmm. for Cipro and all the other floraquinolones don't on just that one, but Levoquin and and the others of all are in that uh, group as well. And another, kudos to the Scandinavians who do these studies like every couple of years and their data is just fascinating when they actually can parse, either prove or disprove Mm -hmm. an association.
1: Their methodology was excellent.
0: Yeah. So um, one of the things we always like to do in uh, toxicology is slay dogma that's been passed on for generations. And one of the biggest dogmas in antibiotic is never let someone on flagell drink alcohol because they'll have this horrible disulfiram reaction. So tell us about this study. It's a little bit older, but I think it's a good one to bring up um, we're talking about antibiotics. Go ahead. Yeah. So
2: this is a paper that was published in the Annals of Pharmacotherapy in 2002, and it was a uh, double-blind, randomized, prospective—I don't want to say trial. It was—they took 12 healthy male volunteers and gave them <laughs> uh, five of them or half of them flagellate, half of them got placebo and then they gave them alcohol and mm-hmm. measured a bunch of parameters every 20 minutes for four hours to see if they had symptoms consistent with a desulfiram-like reaction. Um, and they wanted to see if they found any link. Um, so they give a little bit of history that, that what we know or what we say now is based on some case reports and uncontrolled studies, but there's been no um, randomized trials to link uh, flagellate with a desulfiram-like reaction. Um, And so what they did is this was conducted at Helsinki University Central Hospital. They took 12 healthy male volunteers uh, who were relatively young, 22 to 32, um, and relatively fit, um, a mean BMI of 23.7. None of them had received any medications in the four weeks prior or were using any other drugs. They were all moderate consumers of alcohol, so previous studies have shown possibly a link between chronic uh, heavy consumers of alcohol and its a sulfur-like reaction with Flagyl. Um, so this was double-blind. Like I said, half of them got metronidazole, half of them got placebo. They took that for five days before the test. Uh, the dose was 200 milligrams three times a day, and then the day of the test, they took their last dose an hour before consuming 0.4 grams per kilogram of ethanol mixed with orange juice within 20 minutes. Uh, They took blood samples every 20 minutes um, and then they measured ethanol concentrations, aldehyde concentrations. They also measured blood pressure and temperature and then gave them a questionnaire that asked about subjective symptoms of disulfiram-like reaction, including headache, nausea, dyspnea, and vertigo. Um, They analyzed their samples using chromatography um, and then they did some statistical analyses, Although they did, none of the subjects had any um, increase in, es- in acetaldehyde concentrations or any of the subjective markers of difylofen-like reactions. So they couldn't analyze that, uh, but what they found was that the blood ethanol concentrations were similar between the two groups, uh, didn't seem to be affected by the um, flagel. and then there none of them had any significant differences in heart rate, blood pressure, or facial temperature, it wasn't just statistically significant, and then no one in any group had any adverse symptoms that are associated with uh, disulfiram-like reaction. So they concluded that based on this very small uh, sample, there was no evidence that a disulfiram-like reaction occurs with metronidazole. Um, And then actually they cited some animal studies that have shown that um, module does not inhibit aldehyde dehydrogenase, which is how disulfiram works. And um, they have also done this specific group has done previous studies in animals that looked um, at animals taking metronidazole and it actually raises intracolonic acetaldehyde concentrations after ethanol ingestion. So their ultimate conclusion is possibly the mechanism behind this disulfiram-like reaction with Flagyl has a, s- a separate mechanism that wasn't tested here and there may be specific populations that are more at risk for this reaction so they can't say based on this study that it doesn't cause it but it's a one piece of evidence that um, it does not occur in everyone.
0: Yeah, another reasonably well done, elegant study of uh, volunteers who got flagell, got alcohol. The presumption is they're going to block the aldehyde dehydrogenase and aldehyde would accumulate and in fact none of them accumulated aldehyde and therefore none of them could have had a disulfiram reaction and when they asked about did you have any of these symptoms that we're worried about, really none, none, zero, had any any of it. So, um, again, sort of, I wouldn't say incontrovertible evidence, that slays the myth, but certainly pretty good study that suggests that, yes, you could potentially drink, or at least conservatively, after taking Flagyl. And, and holds up with, I think, um, it's my experience where we used to give Flagyl at one point for penetrating after abdominal trauma was the antibiotic of choice, and as you might imagine, a fair number of those patients um, were not unusually um, intoxicated simultaneously and uh, none of them seem to have any problems with general anesthesia or problems after anesthesia with kind of disulfiram-like reactions. So, if someone tells you, don't let them drink afterwards, you can... Perhaps that's a bit of a medical myth Mm -hmm. that's been handed down through too many generations over a a few poorly uh, verified case reports. One of the other reasons we get called occasionally with antibiotics is, and in general, for just altered mental status, the question becomes, <coughs> could this altered mental status be due to one of the or the other of uh, the antibiotics they're on? So um, there's a nice little review article here also from not that long ago that Lauren's going to toss it about.
3: Yeah, thank you, Zane. Um, so my article was Antibiotic-Associated Encephalopathy, This is by uh, Bhattacharya et al. in Neurology from three years ago in 2016. And the purpose of their paper was that they uh, say um, that medications are commonly considered to be co- reversible causes of encephalopathy and antibiotics are an underrepresented uh, like causative factor in many of those cases and then they cite a recent study that said hey you know um, cefepime caused a whole bunch of encephalopathy in this one patient so they embarked on a uh, large review of the literature. Um, they called it a comprehensive review um, to be distinguished from a systematic review um, and they looked through PubMed searching for cases and the way they decided to analyze their data was not through um Uh, the more traditional higher level of uh, literature we look for because that simply doesn't exist for this type of thing. Most of the cases that we have are cases, case series, case reports. Um, And so they were going to collect as many as they could find and report on them. And what I wanted to start out with which is more listed at the end of the paper but just to help us kind of put this in perspective is um, what type of data we're looking at and so and I'd like to start with the limitations. So looking at this, we discussed very briefly an overview that Adam summarized, which is the Bradford Hill criteria of causality. And for this paper, they specifically used the, the Naranjo um, uh, scoring system for in order to determine the causality of these antibiotics causing the subsequent symptoms that they found in the case series And the Naranjo is another um, the, uh, commonly used tool to establish causality and it's a scale from zero to nine and it looks at things like uh, temporality, did the symptoms reverse when you took the causative factor away, did um, did they reoccur when you introduced the thing back and so it gives it, you can get a score and it's like is there data that this has happened in the past and you can get different scores and um, uh, one to four is possible and then five to I believe nine is probable, and above nine is very, very likely that this is a positive factor, and so they're giving it, we're about to go through a very hefty amount of data with percentages that sounds very reliable, but then they write later, just keep, with the data we have, this is possible. This is Naranjo level, like, up to four, um, and at best, maybe five, maybe crossing into probable, but these are only possible associations. So... um, they did this systematic, they did a comprehensive review. They ended up getting uh, 300, let's see here, 300 cases, over 300 cases and about 200 different reports. And then they described, and the purpose of this was simply to describe the clinical features and imaging and lab and EEG features associated with these cases where there was a encephalopathy after an antibiotic was given and then they broke this down very well organized into based on different antibiotics and also based on symptoms. Um, They included um, individual patient cases, so 391 cases. So the first thing they looked at is the risk factors of the patients, and they looked at renal function, hepatic function, and the psych history to try and identify confounders. Mostly what they noted is that people who had renal insufficiency tended to have a higher risk of having some sort of adverse effect associated with an antibiotic, and specifically um, cephalosporins and cepapim. The next step was that they looked at clinical features associated with the um, antibiotic, and they called it antibiotic-associated encephalopathy, Um, The most common effect after antibiotics that was seen was psychosis, and that was present in 47% of these 391 cases. The next more common were seizures and myoclonus, which were found in 14% and 15% of all these cases, respectively. They also had, very interestingly, um, in metronidazole, specifically, a cerebellar syndrome, uh, where uh, that is mediated um, by neurotoxicity that causes cerebellar lesions results in things such as foot drop, dyscoordination, and even speech and language issues as well. Um, so they just categorized, those were the big things that were identified. Time to onset was very interesting and kind of speaks to the neuronal criteria. So for most antibiotics, the median time of onset of these encephalopathic symptoms was about five days after the antibiotic was started. Um, but for metronidazole it was three weeks, and for isoniazid as well, and then for um, time to resolution was, again, about five days for the rest of the antibiotics, and about 13 days for metronidazole. Then they looked at um, more objective findings, so any case that presented an MRI, they found that pretty much systematically every single antibiotic that resulted in an encephalopathic-type syndrome was normal, Uh, except for metronidazole which had very specific cerebellar findings um, where they had hyperintensities in the dentate nuclei um, and brainstem and corpus callosum. And then there were some EEG findings as well which are appropriately vague as we see and you know um, 70% of cases had things such as generalized slowing which I feel like is something we see very commonly in cases with delirium too. uh, so 70% of those are abnormal. And they were more commonly abnormal encephalosporin. So that was another point that they wanted to make, that encephalosporin-induced cases of encephalopathy. About 95% had an abnormal EEG. Um, and then they reported on a few of them got drug levels. And as we're familiar with in, tox- in toxicology, a drug concentration in the blood is not representative and uh, it correlates usually pretty poorly with degree of toxicity in a person and so they did find that cephapine levels tended to be really high when people were having abnormal effects and that was the only one they reported. They discussed the strength of association which I already discussed which is in the neuronal criteria it was only possible and then what they did with all this data is try to and I think the main point of this paper is just that they're trying to um, help physicians categorize certain patterns of abnormal um, neurologic problems that patients are having and try to make them think of antibiotics when this happens. So what they took is they took the percentages and they, they grouped these uh, encephalopathic features into three types, as phenotypes, in order to help physicians like recognize these encephalopathies. So they have type one, type two, and type three is what they ended up with. Type one is uh, a group uh, that causes myoclonus and seizures and that was mostly found in penicillin and cephalosporins. Then they have type 2, which was generally psychosis and agitation, and that was most of the other antibiotics, so sulfonamides, quinolones, macrolides, and some penicillin and procaine. And then metronidazole is, is in its own very special phenotype called type 3 because it causes this cerebellar syndrome that was not seen in any other antibiotics. Um, and then, isoniazid was kind of its own case, similar to metronidazole, because it has it doesn't fit any into any of the um, categories, and it, we already know that it causes neurotoxicity via its own um, mechanism of action, some GABA problems. And then they go on to they discuss. Um, the limitations which I already went through, and then they discussed possible mechanisms as well of why these are happening, and really everything's theoretical. They just kind of, so for the myoclonus, what is really interesting for the neurotoxicity, so for the penicillins and um, cephalosporins, they note that beta-lactam rings actually bind to gata-A receptors. Um, Penicillins are non-competitive, and cephalosporins are competitive, which I didn't know before reading this, Um, And so I think that's an important note is, you know, any xenobiotic that we're introducing has effects in other places of the body. Um, And then for the psychosis, they propose a lot of things but really they have no data and it's just kind of uh, postulating. So they suggest maybe NMDA, glutamate receptors are involved, maybe dopamine because we see similar stuff. Um, But most interestingly for the metronidazole, though we know that it causes those cerebellar effects, we don't know why, but they theorize that it has something to do with a thiamine type pathway just because patients with a severe thiamine deficiency look the same way. And that's pretty much it for my paper. They just kind of grouped these three syndromes to try and give us um, a summary of what's out there in case reports.
0: Yeah, I thought it was a really good uh, way to sort of categorize what we sometimes see when people are altered and break it down into the seizures which tend to occur with penicillin, especially high doses or inopenem you know, more commonly. The psychosis which can happen a lot of different things and for reasons we still don't understand. Um, and whether it's an ICU or inpatient psychosis from the med or other factors, it's hard to, twee- to tweeze out. And then as far as the metronidazole, which we just talked about being safe with alcohol, unfortunately you can get a cerebellar Syndrome with it that resembles Wernicke's syndrome and in fact has a positive MRI. So, if, you know, if we could maybe, if these symptoms persist or are on exam, perhaps cerebral findings, it's probably prudent to get an MRI in them and see if it looks like that. And if that, that's the case, stop the all, take a different drug. So, usually these drugs have some side effects that sometimes we may help sort out. If people say, this patient's been in the hospital, they're altered, what do you think's causing the problem? These are some things we don't often think of but uh, should be thinking of from time to time. So what I do is switch gears a little bit. Those are talking about mostly some side effects, which you know, in general the antibiotics have some but they're not extensive. Um, you know, one of the things when I was on the PNT committee, we had people from infectious disease and they were always talking about antibiotic stewardship. and. Why are we throwing, you know, three and sometimes four antibiotics at people with unknown diseases? We should be a little bit more careful, and we should stop antibiotics once we know sensitivity, and we switch to orals once we know that they're probably equally bioavailable to the IV forms we're giving. And these are just two elegant and very recent studies from just last month or so that talk about two entities that we usually treat for weeks with antibiotics that maybe Um, we could start switching over to oral. So the first one is partial oral after IV antibiotics for endocarditis. Clearly something that often needs IV antibiotics to start with, but um, changes the way we manage those. So, Antonia?
4: So this study is called the Partial Oral versus IV Antibiotic Treatment of Endocarditis. It's from New England Journal of Medicine from January of this year. And this is a um, multicenter trial that was performed in Denmark Uh, randomized, non-inferiority trial, where they enrolled 400 adults with endocarditis, um, specifically of the left heart, um, caused by one of four specific bacteria in their cultures, um, which was Streptococcus and Fecalis, Staph aureus, or Coag-negative Staph. And all of these were initially treated with IV antibiotics. And they were looking into this. This had been um, studied with right heart endocarditis never was left, um, only very limited data existed um, and as Zane mentioned this is something that's treated uh, with weeks of a- inpatient antibiotics typically um, even in patients who are otherwise stable. So if we could prove that there is a non-inferiority option, inferiority option with oral antibiotics that would be huge for um, both providers and patients alike. So they um, randomized these 400 patients, they split them pretty equally, Um, there were 199 who continued with IV antibiotics for six weeks, and then 201 were switched to oral antibiotics after at least 10 days, but that was not standardized, it was based on sort of when they had demonstrated stability and uh, a couple of other things, but they had to have at least 10 days remaining in their antibiotic course for them to be transitioned. And as what they looked at for their primary outcome was a composite of a variety of things. Um, they looked at all-cause all mortality, unplanned cardiac surgery, uh, the incidence of embolic events, and then relapse in bacteremia with the same pathogen that had been isolated from their cultures. Um, and they concluded that in patients with left heart endocarditis who were stable, uh, that transitioning to oral, ant- oral antibiotics was non-inferior. Um, so their um, cohort derivation, they enrolled only adults who were 18 or older. They had to have culture positive endocarditis of the left heart uh, for the uh, modified due criteria. And then they had to not have a variety of um, things that were all reasonable. Um, only patients with normal GI tracts weren't bold, for example, given that oral antibiotics were to be evaluated. None of them had to have um, Obviously, surgical pathology on their TEEs, for example, um, and their characteristics table um, shows that the two arms of the study, the IV and the oral groups, were well matched in terms of the, the pathogen, the various comorbidities, whether they used IV drugs, and whether they had pacemakers or prosthetic valves. Um, the antibiotic choice was um, not standardized as you'd imagine given that we're they were treating um, four different types of endocarditis, they had to tailor the antibiotic regimens to each patient. Um, so all patients who were transitioned to oral antibiotics were on two different antibiotics from two different drug classes and with different mechanisms of action and metabolic uh, processing and that was just to reduce the, the potential that um, one of one factor would lead to. Um, what they called de facto monotherapy, so they just wanted to optimize um, the antibiotic regimens, and they did test all of the patients in both uh, oral and IV groups for drug levels throughout the study, and with the idea that they would modify if uh, the patients were significantly subtherapeutic, and they did find that some of the patients in the oral group, uh, I believe it was uh, seven patients who had subtherapeutic levels, but not not to the point where they found it necessary to augment their regimen. Um, So even if this were performed in um, actual patients and you weren't checking their levels every three days, they actually didn't modify any of the regimens. So their composite primary analysis uh, was actually 3.5 percent in favor of oral antibiotics. There was less mortality in the antibiotic group, uh, in the oral group. There were only um, seven deaths in the PO group versus 13 in the IV group. And then comparing the other uh, components to the composite analysis, unplanned surgery, embolic events, and relapse of um, of positive blood cultures were essentially equal and throughout the two, uh, the two groups. All both of the groups were followed for six months or until death, uh, monitored at various intervals throughout. Um, the median time for when the patient started the antibiotics was 17 days after starting the. Um, after starting the IV antibiotics. And the oral patients, the, those treated with the oral antibiotics, um, were discharged from the hospital at the discretion of the treating physician, so that was not a standardized part of the study, but um, they only stayed an average of three days after initiating the PO antibiotics versus the IV group who were, part of the study was that they stayed inpatient, um, even if, you know, transitioned to an outpatient facility where they could accommodate IV antibiotics was feasible. So what um, things that they bring up in the discussion was that it was not um, powered to assess primary outcome in any of the subgroups. Uh, they did do an extensive subgroup analysis um, looking at various comorbidities, and everything was quite well masked between the two arms of the studies. Um, one thing that I noticed was that... Um, there are only five patients with IV drugs who are enrolled, so the general, um, whether the study is generalizable to, for example, with the county ED populations we see where it's almost 100% of, uh, of the endocarditis is um, one thing to think about. And then none of the patients had MRSA or antibiotic-resistant strains, so that wasn't an exclusion criteria, that was just coincidence. Um, they also brought up that it's possible that patients who were particularly frail or elderly may not have been referred to one of their participating centers. Um, they didn't really go into the characteristics of these institutions. Um, but overall it was a study that I think is pretty convincing showing that oral antibiotics are a reasonable alternative, especially when they're carefully chosen, um, and in this case it was with dual antibiotic coverage.
0: Yeah, I think that last line is really the, the key here, is just carefully choosing the patients. So there there is some referral bias, like who even got sent to the study centers to begin with. But if you look at their sort of like entry graphic there, they screened close to 2,000 patients before they came up with the 400 that they randomized. So, you know, almost 80% of the patients were excluded for one reason or another. And perhaps some of those factors helped exclude that there wasn't a lot of iv Drug uses in there, they didn't have good outpatient uh, parameters that they could be discharged. But on the other side, because the mortality rate was not inconsequential, it was about three, three 3.5%, they had people who had pacemaker infections and central line infections and a variety of other things that we usually would not really think about treating as an outpatient. And just to be clear, none of these people were treated as an outpatient from day one, they were all in the hospital for usually a couple of weeks before they got switched over to oral antibiotics. But the bottom pharmacokinetic principle is that a lot of these antibiotics that were used have good oral bioavailability equal to what we would expect intravenously and while we're not starting them that way for perhaps other diseases that we don't worry about bacteremia and death as much Um, Oral antibiotics are, in many cases, equal to intravenous antibiotics, Um, but overall, a good study, again, um, done in Scandinavia is the other study where they were able to really control a whole lot of factors involved in these patients. There was a sort of a companion study in the same issue of the New England Journal last month. Um, a a little bit harder to do a really good study on but I think given what they had they worked pretty well with it because the endpoints are a little bit different and we're going to have Chris tell us about sort of the same concept but for things like osteomyelitis and septic arthritis.
5: So the title of this paper is called Oral Versus uh, IV antibiotics for bone and joint infection also published at the same time in January of this year in the New England Journal of Medicine Um, so this study was a multi-center parallel group one-to-one randomized open-label non-inferiority trial comparing IV to oral therapy of bone and joint infection and they randomized a thousand and fifty four patients from 26 national system health hospitals in the UK uh, between 2010 and 2015 to either IV therapy or oral therapy Um, looking at their inclusion criteria just to get an idea who is included, who is excluded. It's, you know, adults greater than 18 years old, bone infections requiring six weeks of antibiotics, Uh, specific infections including osteo of the extra-axial native skeleton, native joint infections requiring excision, arthroplasty, um, prosthetic joint infections, orthopedic um, device or fixation infections vertebral osteo, and that these patients had to receive less than or equal to seven days of IV therapy from the de- date of definitive surgery or the start of plantarietic treatment to be actually included and randomized. Uh, exclusion criteria, they couldn't have any sort of bacteremia, staph aureus bacteremia, uh, bacterial endocarditis within the last month or if the clinician thought that um, it was mild osteo that would not require six weeks, they were excluded as well as those that were sickest in septic shock. Um, all right, so the main outcome that these investigators looked at was looking at it one year for treatment failure based on clinical um, features, microbiologic or histologic features, which you can read there, that's like a sinus tract or pus surrounding the actual site um, you know, culture data that shows that it actually did, they didn't clear their blood cultures, or histological data showing inflammation from uh, wherever their source of infection is at one year. Um, they were accepting an inferiority margin of 7.5%. Uh, it looked like they did a pilot study where they initially agreed upon 5%. They felt that that was, based on consensus, they felt that that was a little bit too restrictive and to moved that out to 7.5%. Um, when you look, when they finally get down to their 1,054, if you look at the baseline characteristics between the randomized groups, they actually look pretty similar, including, you know, age, gender, um, you know, actual causative agent causing their infection. Um, what else? Um, so ultimately after doing this, um, there was actually no statistical difference in the rate of treatment failure between the groups in IV compared to oral. They found 14.6% in the IV and 13.2%. Um, uh, looking at the subgroup analysis as well, there was uh, there was uh, probable or possible treatment failure was similar between groups along with rates of diarrhea associated with C. diff or other adverse events. Um, therapy with IV antibiotics was also associated with a longer uh, length of stay, 14 versus 11, um, with more early therapy discontinuation, 18.9% to 12.8 in the oral, um, and also more IV catheter complications, including infiltrates and uh, mechanical failure of the IV, infections of the IV as well. Um, and there's also, when you look at it in the way it was done, there's some limitations to this trial. Uh, There's some concerning with the high rate of complication and adverse, event, adverse events are a little bit concerning. Um, the specific antibiotics weren't compared in this trial. Um, and there was uh, greater application of rifampin in the oral group which is based on kind of their medicine there. They use rifampin to treat the biofilms that are associated with these type of prosthetic infections. Um, so those are a few of the things that make me worried about this study. Um, I think that's it with that. So, you know, this is typical. This is possibly practice changing. They did only have four percent actually drop out in their intention
0: to treat analysis. So, this is something that could be potentially
5: changing in the future.
0: Yeah, I think a little less so with um, osteo and things like that. First of all, this group is pretty sick. A lot of them mm-hmm. had surgery and their septic arthritis oh. washed out or their bone. Uh, uh, abscesses cleared out. So this is a reasonably sick group. This is not just the, you know, somebody who has a skin infection that progressed to osteo, um, although that's included in there. And again, we don't really admit these patients for the entire duration of their antibiotic therapies because there would be months and months in the hospital. So the vast majority of them do get transitioned to home IV care. But if we can transition more people to oral IV care instead of home, home IV care, you know, that would be procedurally a little easier to do. Um, And unlike the endocarditis, it's not like you can keep getting blood cultures um, on these folks to see if it's cleared or not. It's really more of a subjective, is the redness down, is the pus down, and things like that. So, but I think given all those limitations, I think they did seem to prove that, you know, at some point, once they're stable, and based on the theory that the bioavailability of oral is probably, equal to intravenous, they can be switched over. Um, So, not as clear and clean as the prior study, but they were published together both on the same notion that perhaps this guideline of better antibiotic stewardship is we don't have to keep people in the hospital on IV antibiotics and change the entire antibiotic milieu, of not just those folks, but everyone who's on the same unit sometimes gets infected with MRSA. And interestingly enough, as a Side note, none of the people in the oral switchover got Mm C-diff, which is another um, plus, which is a big worry when everyone gets antibiotics for long periods of time. There was a short accompanying editorial that came along with this that basically described uh, the two studies and threw a few other little um, darts at the picture. (coughs) Um, Basically, that again noted that very few patients were IV drug users, Um, but said the strength of these trials where they had some real-world inclusion criteria, um, although the patients that were picked in both groups were a small minority of the total (coughs) that were originally triaged. Um, The limitation is their open-label design, and because of that they weren't technically blinded, so people knew what they were getting, IV or oral. (coughs) Perhaps the criteria for when someone needs to be switched to switch back or not to start going to be different, knowing that they're not getting IV antibiotics anymore as opposed to getting oral antibiotics. But um, before we all jump on the big bandwagon here, they certainly, as most editorials often write, further studies are indeed needed, but I think this was a pretty big study, both of them, to kind of prove a, a good proof of concept that at some point during a prolonged antibiotic course, oral antibiotics can be initiated and can be done so safely provided there's ongoing evaluation of the patient. And I think that's the big if, is there ongoing evaluation of the patient. So finally, I'm going switch gears to some, you know, the other thing that always comes up in antibiotic stewardship is, like, we keep giving all these antibiotics to people, and pretty soon we're going to develop these organisms that are just resistant to everything else under the sun, and they say new antibiotics don't come along every day. Um, and generally that's true, but it's not like we've stopped looking for new antibiotics. There's still being ones out there, and even if they're derivations of old antibiotics. This, too, also appeared uh, recently in the New England Journal. Kind of go back to that uh, source for several uh, good uh, sort of key articles. And two articles in the same journal talked about a, a new tetracycline derivative, omadacycline, for two very common uh, things that we do treat in the hospital and in the emergency room. So tell us first about community-acquired pneumonia Adrian.
6: Yeah, so this was just published last month, February 2019, uh, amoxicillin for Community Acquired uh, Bacterial Pneumonia. So they start off by talking about how you know, uh, community acquired pneumonia is the most common infection leading to hospitalization and death in all age groups, especially the elderly. Um, so this is important, obviously. Amoxicillin is a new uh, antibiotic, an aminomethylcycline antibiotic that's derived from the tetracycline class. And it overcomes the efflux of ribosomal protection mechanisms of tetracycline resistance. Um, And this was the OPTIC trial, it's the omatocycline for pneumonia treatment in the community trial. Uh, They compared the efficacy and safety of once-daily omatocycline and moxifloxacin for the treatment of community-acquired bacterial pneumonia. This is a phase three double blind, double dummy randomized non inferiority trial. And just if you guys didn't know what a double dummy uh, trial was, Um, it's essentially you're trying to make two treatments that don't look like each other, like the pills or the um, IV formulations, and you're trying to make them look identical to kind of improve blinding. Um, And so this was a large. Uh, many, many sites, so 8 86 sites in Europe, North America, South America, Middle East, Africa, Asia, so pretty much everywhere. Oh,
0: Australian
6: um, stuff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Still the only interesting one. Um, Two-year time period, 2015-2017, uh, this was a done by a pharmaceutical company, Periotech um, Pharmaceuticals, who designed and conducted the trial as well as prepared the statistical analysis plan, so it's good to just know up front. Um, this is a study in adults 18 years or older. Um, so they had several like inclusion criteria. They had to have three or more of the following um, four symptoms: cough, purulent mm-hmm. sputum production, dyspnea, or pleuritic chest pain. And they had to have at least two abnormal vital signs. Um, and they had to have at least one clinical sign or laboratory finding associated with uh, community acquired bacterial pneumonia. And they had to have radiologic confirmed pneumonia. And they have to be characterized as having this uh, pneumonia severity index risk class two through four. Um, and so the, that, you know, the higher the class number, indicates greater risk of death. But they didn't include the, the really, really sick ones, so the five, and they didn't include the ones that weren't that sick, so the ones. So pretty much people who got hospitalized that like, didn't go to the ICU, not the outpatient folks. So. Um, they're randomly assigned in 1-1 ratio to receive 7 to 14 days of mattacycline, 100 mg every IV every 12 hours for two doses, then 100 mg IV every 24 hours, and then they have the option to transition to 300 mg orally every 24 hours after three days. Um, they either got that or they got moxifloxacin, which was 400 mg IV every 24 hours with the option to transition to oral at three days. Their primary endpoint was early clinical response, which they assessed at 72 to 120 hours after the first dose of the drug. Um, trial drug and the intention to treat population. The early clinical response, this is defined as survival with improvement of one or more levels, so if you went from a moder- moderate to a mild level um, relative to baseline, any two or more of those symptoms I discussed, you know, the cough, fetal production, pleuritic chest pain, and dyspnea. Um, and they could have no worsening of one or more of the levels in the other symptoms. And they could not have received, like, a rescue antibiotic, um, so an additional antibiotic. Uh, and the secondary, if the efficacy endpoints, was um, this investigator-assessed clinical response that was um, post-treatment evaluation at, like, 5 to 10 days after the last dose of the trial drug. And this investigator assessed clinical response that was, they de- defined that as survival with resolution or improvement in signs and symptoms of infection to the extent that further antibiotic therapy was unnecessary. So at the screening visit, they, um, they did get in, uh, sputum from these patients um, for gram-staining culture, blood cultures were also collected, and urine, uh, urine was also tested for Legionella and um, strep pneumoantigens. And then they, uh, the blood, they screened, um, post, see, abs- the screening and the post-treatment evaluation for data serologic testing on that um, for Legionella, Mycoplasma, and Chlamydia, and Pneumonia. Mm. Um, and then they looked at safety variables, obviously, adverse effects, um, vital signs, EKG findings, etc. Um, and then their non-inferiority, in non-inferiority margin was um, set at ten percent, um, and let's
1: see.
6: Okay, so the results, there were 774 patients who underwent randomization, so it was the intention to treat population, and 770 received one or more of uh, the, the trial drug, so that was the safety population. Um, they found a pathogen that causes community-acquired pneumonia, um, in 50% of the patients in the invention group. Most frequently it was um, Mycoplasma, 33%, uh, then Strep pneumo, 20%, and Legionella, 19%. Um, mean duration of IV therapy was 5.7 days. Mean total duration of therapy was 9.6 days in each group. Um, a transition from IV to oral therapy occurred in 77 and 75% uh, in the amoxicillin versus the moxifloxacin group, um, and they found that amoxicillin was non-inferior to moxi with regard to early clinical response. So 81 versus 82%, um, and let's uh, see, the clinical response rates associated with the amoxicillin and moxi were similar for again that investigator-assessed clinical response that so was at five to ten days. In um, both the intention-to-treat and the clinical per protocol population, um, and amatocycline had c- uh, clinical efficacy similar to that of moxifloxin against the pathogens that cause community-acquired mm-hmm. I mean, pneumonia, um, and as well as uh, let's see, so and there was no correlation found between like the minimum inhibitory uh, concentration value for community-acquired bacterial pathogens. Um, in clinical outcomes. As far as safety, the adverse effects, uh, that, um, events that emerged after treatment occurred in 41% of patients in the metacycline group and 48% in the moxie group. GI effects uh, events were the most frequent. The largest difference with the, uh, between the groups was the incidence of diarrhea. So 1% in the metacycline and 8% in the moxifloxacin. And C. diff did not occur in any of the patients' um, that were in the matacycline group, but in 2.1% in the moxifloxacin group. Uh, there was a total of 12 deaths. There were eight in the matacycline and four in the moxifloxacin group. So there, in their discussion, they say that efficacy of this month daily matacycline administered IV with the option to transition to oral was non-inferior to that of moxi for the treatment of community acquired bacteria pneumonia of, of adults who are not in the intensive care unit um, by based on their analysis using this um, clinical endpoint of you know early clinical response, um, safety profile uh, is consistent with the safety profile of the tetracycline other drugs in te- tetracycline class. Um, serious adverse effects um, after treatment initiation were reported in six to seven percent of the patients in each group. This is very similar to rates found in other phase three trials involving community-acquired pneumonia. And kind of their overall uh, conclusion here is that, you know, we know that antibiotic resistance, as Damien was talking about, um, it has resulted in a need for new antibiotics for uh, everything, but uh, also community-acquired pneumonia. And um, given the spectrum of activity of amoxicillin against typical and atypical respiratory pathogens, the absence of cross-resistance um, with other antibiotic classes and the efficacy that they show in this trial uh, suggests the potential role for this treatment, um, or for this antibiotic to treat community-acquired bacterial pneumonia.
3: Yeah,
0: so another interesting and well-done study. Um, I mean, completely blinded, no one knew which drug they were getting and, um, you know, found pretty good results, I'd say good results with this new tetracycline class medication. The only thing that was a little bit different between the groups um, was that the mortality rate was about twice in this new drug group as it was 2% versus 1% in the moxifloxin group. So we just heard with the dissection, um, you know, with the, the fluoroquinolones, uh, they didn't really look for that or say if anyone died of that, but you would wonder if you had a bigger group with a larger number, would you see a disparity between the short-term mortality in these groups? And i really go on to explain why the people died in the uh, pomatocybin group versus the moxifloxacin group, other than perhaps their disease progressed more. So there was a difference. You always have to wonder, especially as you stated, they had a medical writer hired by the drug company that initiated this, and they can put a little bit of a spin sometimes on these statistics and downplay things that, if you read all the data, maybe seem glaring to us, but they didn't really comment on a lot in their paper, so something a a little bit to worry about. I think the good news is, again, no C. diff. So we always Mm -hmm. like drugs that don't cause C. diff, and the fact that people generally tolerated the drug without liver dysfunction or other problems. Um, is all um, very nice. Um, I won't get into the whole design, but when you do the non tri- trials there's things about uh, per protocol and intent to treat and the purists amongst the statisticians would say intent to treat is the best, even though some people don't make it to the protocol, you wonder if there's a bias on why they don't make it to the protocol. Like I tended to give you antibiotics but I decided you really were a little bit sicker and I gave you more IV or I threw in a second antibiotic or something along those lines that made the per protocol different than the intent to treat. And I think they found there was really no difference in both of those arms. So when you find the same thing in both arms, it's good when there's a disparity between the two arms, then you worry about this sort of small bias that may have crept in despite all the blinded randomization that went on. So finally, uh, I do want to talk about one last use for a cyclin. Um, although it doesn't address what we see in the emergency department, potentially, extension of this may be for straightforward cellulitis. Um, so Tony, tell us about that.
7: Yeah, so this was also published in the New England Journal and funded by the same uh, company that uh, Adrian's paper. The study design is very, very similar, um, so almost everything about background and study design that's happened in Adrian's paper, essentially happened for this paper, but this is for skin and soft tissue infections. Um, so they go into background about amatocycline um, and how it's a tetracycline class um, antibiotic and has been shown to have an acceptable side effect profile. So this is a phase three uh, control, a double blind, double dummy, randomized non-inferiority trial, just like, um, just like Adrian's was. Again, sites all throughout the world. Um, Now my attention is being drawn to Australia and I'm not seeing it on there, so I think they also skipped the Australians. Um, Also, again, funded by Paratech Pharmaceuticals, Um, so the enrolled population was adults who were 18 years or older who had a qualifying skin uh, or soft tissue infection, so either a wound infection from intravenous drug use or trauma, um, cellulitis, erysipelas, or also they included abscesses. And uh, they needed to have a a surface area of infection that was at least 75 centimeters uh, squared and clear evidence of erythema, edema, or induration. Um, And then they also needed to have evidence of some sort of inflammatory response. Um, So um, they essentially um, excluded people that uh, were expected to have courses of antibiotics uh, require courses of antibiotics longer than fourteen days. Uh, anyone who had like a chronic skin infection, so more than three months present, um, and then anyone who had significant like liver renal or uh, re- liver renal insufficiency or an uh, in immunocompromised state. So the study was designed to give these folks uh, either linezolid or amoxicillin because that was that's what you're trying that's what they were trying to um, investigate non-inferiority um, towards was. Uh, Linazolid, and so it was seven to fourteen days of amoxicillin, um, starting off essentially with 100 milligrams q12 for two doses, and then 100 milligrams given in, uh, intravenously every 24 hours, with the option to transition to 300 milligrams uh, q24 after after three days. Uh, And then the lid protocol is 600 milligrams given every 12 hours with the option to transition to oral oral regimen, 600 milligrams every 12 hours after three days. Um, So uh, as far as uh, like sort of the, Population and, and endpoints and so forth. This was an intention-to-treat uh, population. Um, there was um, that was everyone who was randomly assigned. Then a safety population who uh, that included anyone who received any amount of trial drug. And then there's a modified intention-to-treat population that includes um, people in the intention-to-treat population that did not have a sole gram-negative cause uh, of their uh, or sample, sole gram-negative causative pathogen, baseline. So um, the FDA apparently had recommended their primary endpoints being um, early clinical response in, in the modified intention-to-treat population, um, <clears throat> and then uh, this was sort of defined as reduction in the lesion size of at least 20% after 48 to 72 hours. Then there were a number of secondary endpoints that they looked at. Um, there were some investor-assessed, investigator-assessed Um, clinical response at the uh, post-evaluation treatment, so 7 to 14 days after the last um, dose. Um, Then they looked at um, survival with resolution or improvement in signs and symptoms of infection um, to the extent that they didn't need antibiotics anymore. Uh, A bunch of people had um, uh, samples collected for gram-staining and culture and so forth and um, you know, some people were able to have a positive um, path to determine and some people were not. But um, they were essentially, they used the same non-inferiority margin as the previous paper, so they were looking for a 10% non-inferiority, non-inferiority margin um, that has been, I guess, this has been used in previous trials uh, that have been similar, so that's why they picked that. Um, They ultimately had uh, 655 patients undergo randomization, um, 645 of which received at least one trial drug. Uh, The mean lesion area at baseline was 299.5 centimeters in the omatocycline group and 315 um, centimeters squared in the lanazolid group, so slightly bigger in the lanazolid group. Um, uh, Let's see. Uh, MRSA was detected in about 30% of the patients in the omatosecond group and only 22% of those in the linazolid group. Um, let's see. Um, about 72% of patients in the modified intention-to-treat population ended up having a monomicrobial gram-positive infection. And as far as treatment duration, um, the average, the mean treatment duration was four and 4.4 days for the intravenous therapy, uh, for intravenous therapy, and then 5.5 days for oral therapy in the amatocycline group, which is incredibly similar to, um, oh, I guess it was 4.4 days intravenous for both groups, and then uh, as far as oral therapy, they were also very similar. It was 5.5 days for amatocycline, um, uh, and then 5.4 days for uh, lenacylid group. Um, Let's see. Um, oh, a transition from uh, transitioning from intravenous to oral therapy happened in eighty-eight and a half percent of patients in the amantadine group, and eighty-eight uh, percent of patients with uh, the, in the lenalidomide group. Which again, obviously, is very similar. Um, treatment adherence was um, also very similar. Um, it was ninety-nine point one in the omatosecond group and ninety-nine point eight percent in the group. So, again, um, very, very, very similar. Uh, so, overall, omatocycline seemed to be not inferior to linazolid as far as the primary endpoint went. Um, they had a rate of early clinical response of 84.8% in the, in the omatocycline group and 85.5% in the linazolid group, which is pretty impressive and very similar to each other. Um, let's see. Um, they... Um, in both treatment groups, they had a, um, a re- reduction in size of the lesion of about 50% on day three, which again is pretty impressive, um, and had essentially 99% um, reduction in the size of the lesion at the end of the treatment. Um, as far as safety goes, uh, neither neither of the groups really had a ton of um, adverse events or side effects. Gastrointestinal events were more essentially most common, and the most common gastrointestinal event was nausea and vomiting, which is pretty common with a lot of antibiotics. Um, they only had to discontinue the trial drug in one person uh, because of gastrointestinal symptoms. And then um, they also didn't have any, just like the last uh, trial, they didn't have any cases of C. diff in this one. Um, and again, no seemingly no serious um, complications. Um, so overall, uh, it seems like this is just another option for us if we start to see, you know, linazolid resistance in these candid soft tissue infections. Um, there are some downsides to this study. Um, probably the biggest one, or one of the biggest ones, being that these are, a lot of these are different types of infections that they kind of combine, and they, you, you really can't, it's not powered to determine non-inferiority between different types of infections, so was it like cellulitis, was it uh, it an abscess? So, you know, maybe linazolid is better for abscesses than a metacycline, but when you pull everything together, um, it looks, you know, it looks non-inferior. But, um, you know, it would be nice to to sort of be able to see, uh, to sort of tailor these to the types of infections that people have. But overall, this seems like a fairly good option for people um, who have skin and soft tissue infections, which is, you know, a common problem that we see.
0: Yeah, I mean, I have a little bit more problems with this one than with everything else we talked about. I mean, it doesn't really say why a lot of these folks, other than they were in the study, got IV antibiotics for like four days, because that's, even with a, let's say someone has cellulitis or an abscess, I mean, more than overnight for IV antibiotics is a bit unusual, you know, at least here in, in the U.S., unless there's some other factors like diabetes or poor home health situation that we wouldn't let them go. Home with apparently this drug is orally active because it works that way. And really, the study you'd like to see maybe done next is like oral um, omatocyclin versus something that we actually yeah. use regularly like, no, no, regular, regular, yeah. against Bactrim, against clinda, against even cephalosporin, yeah. Maybe forearm study to see how it stands up for things like erysipelas, perhaps for cellulitis
7: perhaps and then sort of the deeper yeah. infections maybe a completely
0: different story.
7: Yeah. I mean that being said I guess I'm not using a lot of moxifloxacin either for community acquired pneumonia you know. Although well, I think community it mean, probably happens I more. Them, well, I, yeah, yeah that's probably true I, but when I admit people I almost always get visit their own subteropsoxone right. that's just what I use.
0: Right. I um, we probably shouldn't based on the first study cool. I mean there's, if there's other yeah. options besides yeah. the fluoroquinolone we should probably be good stewards of yeah. that and avoid treating 12,000 patients to induce the yeah. one person is going to have an aortic
7: rupture. Yeah. I don't know, did you guys, have you guys been to places that, yeah, I, that use linazolid for skin and soft tissue infections? I, I have not seen that. I've only given it once and someone who was,
1: it was like their third. Yeah, like their, their resistant or something, or something. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of interesting that they picked up that with,
7: at yeah. least in my experience, I don't use for either type of infection. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and maybe worldwide, these antibiotics are being used commonly. Maybe people are using linase all the time, and maybe people are using... The the cheaper in other countries where they don't charge it here. Because this was a worldwide study, so mm-hmm. maybe that's why. And it's just American practice patterns are different. Mm-hmm.
0: So anyway, some food for thought about antibiotics, which we don't talk about, but certainly it's in our ballpark to make comments of, looking for side effects that may exist, like or may not exist, like disulfiram reactions, look at some new regimens to be good stewards of the antibiotics, and keeping our eye open for the quality of studies when we see a drug company putting forth a new antibiotic. Is it as good as they say it is? More to come on that. So for uh, the Oregon Employment Center and our Journal Club, we'll see you again next time. Thank you.